a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and thanks for joining us today on the show. I want to thank my sponsors, including Alta Bank, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I do appreciate them being a part of the Brian Hyde Show. And I would encourage you, if you haven't checked out the show notes, please trip on over to thebrianhydeshow.com. Show notes are very easy to find. And I always have more content than I have time to share with you. So it's, it's, it's a very safe bet. If you want to click on that, you're going to find a lot of good reading. I'm, I'm not suggesting that uh, everything you read there is uh, absolutely 100% written in stone. You know, you hang your hat on it. It is the truth. But I will say with, with respect to, I spend a fair amount of my time every single day looking for the best sources of thoughtful, principled information that helps us better understand the world around us. And I'm pretty good at it. I'm not, I'm not perfect by any means, but I, I can find things that, that can make you think if that's something that you're into. I mean, a lot of times, and, and sadly, a lot of people tend to prefer, well, I just want to hear things that, uh, you know, that coincide with what I already believe. They don't want to bump up against something that they, they may not already know. And I get it. I have my, I have my preconceived and pre-confirmed biases that it's, you know, I'm happy when I see something, hey, it looks like I'm right on this. It's good. It's fun to be right. But... You're never going to learn anything if you're not willing to to push your limits, push that envelope just a bit from time to time. That's how we encounter information that actually enlarges our understanding of the world around us. Speaking of which, Econ 101. Now, if you're a student, you know, maybe you're enthusiastic. Oh, economics, yes. <laughs> That's what I want to learn. I, I can't remember. There's, there's a quote about, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing in the world more dangerous than someone who's just taken their first Econ 101 class. Well, Donald J. Boudreau has a great essay. This is published, I believe, on uh, the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And it's about six key takeaways that every student should receive from Econ 101. Now, you don't have to be a formal student sitting in a college classroom somewhere to benefit from what he's describing here. What I'm going to suggest is if you really want to understand the world around you, you've got to be willing to, to look at how the world works. I can't think of anything better than having a basic working knowledge of economics to understand that. You don't have to be an egghead. You don't have to be an intellectual. And I'm grateful for individuals like Henry Hazlitt, whose Economics in One Lesson turns out to be one of the foundational books that informed my own understanding of what economics is and what it isn't, but more importantly, how to see the world through eyes that aren't just hyper-focused on, well, what's the immediate effect of a particular policy? You've got to be willing to look beyond and ask the kind of questions that, that demand you take a more well-rounded view than just simply, I want this, therefore it must be the right thing. Let me share some thoughts here. This is again from Donald J. Boudreau. 
Ah, here we go. It was Arthur Brooks who said it. Uh, He says, in a 2015 podcast conversation with American Enterprise Institute, uh, Arthur Brooks, actually it was Vox's Ezra Klein who declared there's nothing more dangerous than somebody who's just taken their first economics class. Often, uh, Often expressing a similar contempt for Econ 101 is University of Connecticut law professor James Quack. Now, this expressed skepticism of Econ 101 comes across as wise and sophisticated, even hip, to many people who don't grasp Econ 101. And Donald Boudreau says, It gives the mistaken impression that those who warn of the alleged folly of taking Econ 101 too seriously are experts not only in elementary economics, but also in advanced economics. But he says this contemptuous dismissal of the relevance of Econ 101 is actually foolish. Those who express it either really don't know any economics whatsoever or mistakenly presume that the theoretical curiosities explored in Econ 999 are more relevant than is the reality revealed by Econ 101. But he says the truth is that Econ 101 taught well, supplies ample, important, and timeless insights into the way the world works. And he says those insights, sadly, are far too rare among those who are unexposed to elementary economics. So here's the kernel of truth. He says, no one denies that a deeper understanding of economic reality is supplied by training in sound, advanced economics. If, for example, we're interested in understanding and predicting many of the policies of how people react to changes in particular government policies. If we want to understand those details, and if we want to know how to trace out some of the specific consequences of these likely reactions... Knowledge of economics beyond that which is conveyed in an intro econ course is useful. And similarly, he says, if we want to better understand many observed commercial practices, like corporate stock buybacks or automobile dealerships penchant for clustering near each other, then knowledge beyond principles of economics is often necessary. So no one can doubt the usefulness of more advanced economics, but he says it doesn't follow from these observations that knowledge merely of economic principles is itself dangerous. The young person who absorbs Econ 101 but who takes no further courses in economics will nevertheless, and for the rest of his or her life, possess a genuine understanding of reality that is distressingly rare among politicians, pundits, preachers, and the general public. So far from being a danger to society, this person inoculated against the worst and most virulent strands of economic ignorance will sometimes serve as a beneficial check on the spread of ideas that are dodgy and sometimes perilous. The true danger is not knowledge of only Econ 101. The true danger is ignorance even of Econ 101. For instance, he says the typical protectionist opposes free trade not because he aced an advanced econ course and learned that under just the right circumstances, <clears throat> excuse me, optimally imposed tariffs can be justified on economic grounds. No. The typical protectionist opposes free trade because he doesn't understand the first thing about economics. He, does, he doesn't understand that the purpose of trade is to enrich people as consumers and not to guarantee the incomes of existing producers. The typical protectionist doesn't understand that exports are costs and that imports are benefits. He thinks it's the other way around. Failing to understand that the act of importing not only destroys but also creates particular jobs in the domestic economy, the protectionist mistakenly concludes that the more we import, the fewer the number of jobs, or the fewer are the number of jobs in our economy. 
The typical protectionist, in short, doesn't understand the first thing about economics. Yet had he taken a well-taught Econ 101 course, he'd not swallow and repeat these and other myths about trade. Likewise, the typical politician that doesn't su- the typical politician rather doesn't support minimum wages because she's concluded that after careful study that employers of low-skilled workers possess a sufficient quantum of monopsony power in the market, the labor market. In addition to monopoly power in the output market to nullify the prediction of basic supply and demand analysis that minimum wages shrink low-skilled workers' employment options. No. She supports minimum wages because she naively supposes that wages are set arbitrarily by employers and that the higher wages come out of either uh, employers' profits or consumers' wallets without prompting any changes in employers' or consumers' behavior. And he says that most of this politician's constituents share her economic ignorance. They miss the reality revealed by Econ 101, namely that when wages are not set arbitrarily, or that wages are not set arbitrarily, rather, by employers, and that therefore, when the cost of employing workers is raised by minimum wages, employers respond in part by employing fewer workers. Now, he says in both of the above examples, and these are just two examples of many, widespread understanding of Econ 101 would reduce the likelihood of these destructive policies winning public support. His point here is that that, uh, the principles are what's foundational, and they're called economic principles for a good reason. What is taught in a solid economic principles course are the principles of the operation of a competitive economy guided by market prices. They describe the logic of markets and accordingly, in most cases, offer a trustworthy guide for understanding the economy and an understanding of the consequences of government interventions into the economy. He says it's true that reality sometimes serves up circumstances that render knowledge of only or knowledge only of economic principles inadequate, but if economic principles did not on most occasions give reliable and insightful insights and useful insights that is rather into how the real world economies actually operate, well then they would be anti-principles. They ought not be taught and students should demand tuition refunds along with compensation for being defrauded by their colleges. But he says, in fact, enormously important insights are conveyed in a good Econ 101 course. When we come back the other side of the break, I'm going to share six observations, six key takeaways, he says, every student should get from a good Econ 101 course. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Okay, in the first segment, look, I used a lot of economic jargon. Actually, Donald J. Boudreaux used a lot of economic terms. And I apologize, sometimes that can get a little bit confusing. At least it does for me. But let's cut to the chase. Six takeaways that he says an attentive Econ 101 student should learn. And by the way, you could be that Econ 101 student, even if you're not sitting in a college setting and and dutifully taking notes. These are things that you should understand, basic things you should know about economics if you want to understand how the world works. Number one, our world is one of unavoidable scarcity. And so to use more resources to produce guns is to have fewer resources available to produce butter. 
This is another way of saying there's no such thing as a free lunch, a free gun, or any or free anything else. There are always going to be trade-offs. Number two, wealth is goods and services. Wealth is not money. And so to create more money without creating more goods and services is to create not more wealth, but only more inflation, along with the distortions and uncertainties that inflation unleashes. Number three, when the cost that a person incurs to take some action rises, the attractiveness to that person of taking that action falls. This is why higher taxes on carbon emissions reduce carbon emissions and why higher taxes on income-earning activities reduce income-earning activities. It's a punishment. Number four, profits are entrepreneurs' reward for successfully satisfying consumers' wants. Profits are neither stolen from consumers nor extracted from workers. Therefore, the greater good performed in the market by entrepreneurs, the higher the the entrepreneurs' profits. Number five, prices and wages aren't arbitrary. They're set in markets by consumers competing against each other to purchase goods and services and by sellers competing against each other to sell goods and services. Sellers in competitive markets no more control prices than do buyers. And finally, because of the principle of comparative advantage, he says, it is literally impossible for one country to monopolize the production of all goods and services. Now, I'm going to have a link to this article, and I would recommend look it up. And if, there's, if there are phrases in here like comparative advantage that you, uh, that you don't understand, look that up as well. Donald J. Boudreaux says, I submit that these and other lessons being taught in Econ 101 are vitally significant and need not await being polished and conditioned by the lessons of higher-level economics courses before becoming immensely useful. He says, far from being dangerous, these and other Econ 101 lessons are beautiful and essential. Now, if you felt like, wow, but there's, there's so much jargon and there's so much that's, that, uh, that I didn't understand, don't, don't let that intimidate you in the least. As I've mentioned before in this program, the, the only way to really build your ability to think better than you thought yesterday is to start uh, tackling things that are above your head. And that means running into words that you don't understand. It's okay. They have this wonderful thing out there. It's called a dictionary. And in fact, it's online, so it's pretty easy. You know, if, you, if you're reading an article, you can actually just, you know, click on a word and look it up. See what it means. Yeah, it takes time. And you all, we all don't uh, have as much time as we would like, right? Our leisure time, that's when we want to decompress. That's when I wanted to sit back and binge watch some great series on Netflix or whatever. But if you're serious about being a free person, if you are set on understanding the world around you and living up to whatever principles you hold most dear, you've got to be willing to devote a portion of your time to improving your understanding of the world, improving your ability to think clearly and independently. I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I'm not trying to tell you, therefore, you know, put away the barbecue. Cancel, you know, whatever subscriptions you have to this sports channel or that sports channel. Nope, no more fun allowed. You'll still have time for fun, trust me. I'm just pointing out that uh, there, there's no shortcut to becoming better informed, to becoming a more well-rounded thinker. You've got to be willing to invest the time. And it's worth it. Moving on, 
I didn't think there was a way that uh, you could make taxes worse. In fact, I think it was Will Rogers who made the comment, you know, what's the difference between death and taxes? <clears throat> death doesn't get worse whenever a legislature meets. Well, leave it to California to come up with a way to make taxes even worse than they already are. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but stumbled across this article from Gary Gallas. This is on the uh, Mises.org website. California now wants to tax people who live in other states, too. Now, if you've lived in California, if you've had to deal with the <clears throat> bureaucratic reality of what that state is like, you, you're probably nodding your head going, oh, yeah, I can totally see them doing this. Well, here's what uh, Gary Gallas says. He says, California's government has become infamous for abusing its citizens, from steep taxation to burdensome regulations to arbitrary COVID impositions. But less well-noticed is how it's also trying to abuse other Americans as well. As reported in a December 28th Los Angeles Times editorial, the California Department of Tax and Fee Administration, or CDTFA, which oversees sales and use tax collections, is trying to retroactively impose sales taxes on out-of-state realtors as far back as 2012. More than eight years. Oh, this is going to make some people happy. Prior to 2018 South Dakota versus Wayfair Supreme Court ruling, states had the power to mandate that companies with a physical presence in their borders collect and remit taxes on sales in the state, even if the products involved came from outside the state. But they could not force companies with no physical presence in the state to do so. Then South Dakota versus Wayfair gave states the power to mandate that companies with no physical presence in their state also pay taxes on sales within their borders if they have a sufficient economic nexus or volume of business, essentially, to the state. California passed such a law in 2019, and since those sellers were only confronted with the law then, in fairness, those taxes should only apply afterward. But the CDTFA has been asserting that out-of-state retailers who sold and shipped through Amazon Fulfillment Centers or Amazon Fulfillment Services, or AFS, now owe back sales taxes from the first date their products were stored in a California Amazon warehouse, even back to 2012 when Amazon was first required to pay California state taxes on its direct sales from out-of-state locations into the state. Wow. I... I that that is just uh, well, I'm I'm speechless, and California has has you know surprised me time, at times before, but that's just greedy. <laughs> Holy cow! In a letter to Governor Gavin Newsom over a year and a half ago, Fiona Ma, California State Treasurer, laid out the CDTFA's actions as unlawful, unconstitutional, and impractical, and she asked Governor Newsom to stop both the retroactive and prospective taxation on sales that small out-of-state businesses are not legally responsible for under California law. But Gary Gallus says such action has still not been taken, which forced the online merchants guild to issue a legal challenge back in October. And while those so inclined can pursue the uh, legal arguments and precedents in more depth, depth rather, he says, I want to emphasize that retroactive or ex post facto taxation is not only blatantly unfair, but it actually violates the constitutional ban on both state and federal adoption of ex post facto laws. The arbitrariness and unfairness of the retroactive rule changes is obvious. How fair or entertaining would any sport be if referees could change the rules after the fact? In other words, arbitrarily adding time to the clock late in the football game or negating any goals scored in hockey by a team that pulled its goaltender. 
Who would go to Vegas if the payoffs were subject to arbitrary changes after the roulette wheel has stopped? How well would the labor market work if employers could retroactively lower the wages you earned last year? And he does point out that such retroactive changes also would have been abhorrent to America's founders. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. You know, I, I've noticed that even in my home state of Utah, governor has or government rather has this insatiable appetite for revenue. If there is something in your life that's bringing you happiness or joy, government wants a cut of it. They want their peace. Give me my money. California is just taking it to a whole new level. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. If you have need for commercial insurance, I don't have to tell you, that can get complicated. As in, sometimes you may be wondering, do I have everything covered that I need to have covered? If that question is lingering in your mind, I'm going to suggest follow the links in my show notes. There are sponsor links at the bottom of each day's show notes. And contact my friend Steve Burgess at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. There's no obligation here. I'm just going to recommend Steve to you because he is one of the most thoughtful, detail-oriented, and professional guys that I know, and he and his company can answer those questions for you. Again, that's Landmark Risk Risk Management and Insurance. They can answer any questions you have about your commercial insurance coverage. I know it's not something that everybody needs, but if you need it, you need to make sure you've got it right. So give him a shout. I've been sharing this article from Gary Gallus. He's a professor of economics at Pepperdine University. And it's about how California now wants to tax people who live in other states. And he talks about how the, the kind of things that they're suggesting here, which is primarily they want to uh, charge back sales taxes to businesses that have done, uh, that have done business through California. For instance, Amazon's uh, fulfillment uh, warehouses on merchandise that they received back in 2012. So retroactively, they want to go after that money. That's an ex post facto law, and that's a problem. And even back in the time of America's founders, that was seen as a problem. In Article 1 of the Constitution, Section 9 specifically banned federal ex post facto laws. Section 10 banned them in the states, although the Supreme Court long ago decided not to apply this ban to taxes. Now, the Commerce Clause also means, as Justice Kennedy noted in his majority opinion in South Dakota versus Wayfair, that states may not impose undue burdens on interstate commerce. In Federalist Number 44, James Madison describes ex post facto laws as contrary to the first principles of the social compact and to every principle of sound legislation, with the consequence that all of them are prohibited by the spirit and scope of these fundamental charters. Madison also used similar reasoning in support of the prohibition against states issuing their own money. That's found in Article 1, Section 8. Retrospective alterations in its value might be made and thus the citizens of other states be injured. The same argument also underlies the Constitution's imposition of a uniform national bankruptcy code. So when you apply to when applied to ex post facto taxation, California's sales tax grab also runs afoul of Madison's Federalist Number 10. Quote, 
the apportionment of taxes seems to require the most exact impartiality. Yet there is perhaps no legislative act in which greater opportunity and temptation are given to trample on the rules of justice. Every shilling which they overburden one group with is a shilling saved to their own pockets, end quote. Gary Gallus concludes that it's unfortunate California is not only trying to abuse out-of-state dwellers, but trying to do it retroactively. And he says that goes even beyond the abuse it imposes on its own citizens in defiance of fairness and clear constitutional principles. And when the state treasurer publicly makes that case to the governor without effect, it says a lot about how concerned California's government is with the people's general welfare in contrast with its own interests. I'll have a link to this, and you can check it out for yourself. I thought that was, uh, that was interesting and just a little bit scary. I have a good friend. Shout out to the C-Train. Hope he's doing better. Uh, been under the weather for a little bit, but uh, C-Train was telling me about how part of the year, his, his work requires him to, <clears throat> to attend work and work out of New York State, for which he has the privilege of having to file New York State income tax returns. Doesn't that sound great? Look, you can, you can call me a tax protester if you want. Uh, I, I pay my taxes because it's easier to, to live my life and to do what I do outside of a jail cell. But isn't it just a little disturbing on some level how entitled politicians and tax collectors feel to whatever you happen to have in your pocket? I'm sure in their minds it's like, but we do important work. We, we make good things happen. Yeah, I think that's kind of a relative call. But at some level, there's got to be an effective check. One of the questions I've loved to ask candidates over the years, is there a tax rate that's so high that the people would be under no moral obligation whatsoever to pay it? Ask that question sometime when you're talking with a candidate. Watch their eyes spin around like, uh, you know, a slot machine's, you know, uh, wheels as, as they're trying to come up with an answer that satisfies, oh, but we need taxes. It's the price we pay for civilization. I think I may be of the opinion that perhaps we have just a touch too much civilization. All right, shifting gears. I've heard of being red-pilled. The blue pill, of course, just puts you right back to sleep. The red pill helps you see reality. You ever heard of the white pill? The white pill actually denotes good news. And I saw a very interesting article on intellectual takeout that I wanted to share with you. This is from Edward Welsh, and it's called A White Pill for Disappointed Populists. Look, the events of this week in Washington, D.C., particularly, uh, you know, I guess it was last night, Donald Trump conceded the 2020 election to Joe Biden. That has been tough for a lot of uh, populists to swallow. Here's how Edward Welsh puts it. He says, President Donald Trump conceded the 2020 election Thursday night. Many voices on the, on the right and left are condemning him and his followers because a small number of rally attendees the day before briefly occupied the Capitol building, one of whom, Ashley Babbitt, was brutally and unnecessarily slain by federal law enforcement. Now, some are suggesting that the national populist movement of which Trump has been the figurehead has been permanently damaged as a result of this display of outrage from the right. Even though the damage and loss of life paled in comparison to the leftist riots and criminality that America has suffered from all year. But in this case, Edward Welsh says, I don't share those concerns. 
He says, I believe that after a period of ultimately feudal repression that is probably coming from Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley, the national populist movement will emerge stronger than ever and that it will be stronger and more effective after Trump. He says it didn't take any great insight to see that Trump was an inconsistent and incoherent representative of middle Americans, the ones who put him into power. He demonstrated that from the very beginning with the capricious firing of several of his most loyal advisors in his first year and his bizarre hiring of several neoconservative and establishment GOP political fossils whom he should have known would be disloyal to him and his base. As a television star and capitalist pitchman, Trump was merely the most effective weather vane. During the 2016 primaries, it was only Trump who seemed to be able to feel the powerful winds of discontent blowing from America's heartland. The primal force was the voice of many hardworking working-class Americans, many of them former Democratic voters who were sick of the choices on offer. They wanted an end to foreign immigration that was undermining their job prospects and community solidarity. They wanted an end to the pointless foreign wars that served no national interest and for which their sons died or were maimed. They wanted a check on the rapacious capitalism that was shipping their jobs overseas and the corrupt academic and media class that was forcing normalization of cultural radicalism at home. Despite Trump's promises, his delivery fell short, whether due to his own faults or opposition from the entrenched managerial elite. But the power behind Trump was never in the man himself. It was in the powerful wind of national populism that blew at his back, and which, to his credit, he was savvy and courageous enough to catch in his sails and allow to carry him into the White House. And thus, as futile as it seems in retrospect, it was the right approach for Trump supporters and those who support national populism to support Trump up until his concession speech on the evening of Thursday, January 7th. It was actually the best strategy for them to be more loyal to him than he was to them. In arriving in such force and fervor for a truly, largely peaceful protest in support of President Trump, they showed that the ideas of national populism will not be ignored. The Republican Party will either have to change from within or be conquered from without. Now he says, yes, a small number of populists may have went too far, in occupying the Capitol building, but that's a small transgression in the larger scheme of things, and one that was done many times in the past. By feminists, by Black Panthers, by war veterans, the equivalent of Pearl Harbor, as Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer historically claims, it was not. Yes, the established political powers will try to blow this out of proportion and use it to justify repression and censorship online and off. Yes, the GOP and others will try to subvert this new force to the neoliberal, neoconservative consensus, just like they did with the Tea Party. Yes, he says there will be political struggles. But the events of January 6th should make it clear that that a significant section of the country is willing to fight those battles and to win them, with Trump, or perhaps even better, without him. Again, this is Edward Welsh, and I tend to agree with him. Not that I'm suggesting that, uh, boy, you know, politics is the only place we're ever going to win this, but people who still think that what they saw in terms of the size of the crowd or the people who were contesting what were being told were the election results, that that was all just because of Trump worship, you're missing something. That anger goes a lot further back, and it's a lot deeper than you think. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to thank uh, John Staples at Alta Bank. For my listeners in Utah, if you are a part of the hot real estate market right now, as in you're actively shopping for a home, maybe getting ready to uh, refinance your existing mortgage, you really should talk to John at Alta Bank. He was telling me the other day that uh, interest rates are ridiculously low, like almost scary low. And they're not going to stay there forever. So if, you, uh, if you're if you interested, you probably should get a move on it. At the very least, talk to him. He can tell you uh, whatever you need to know about your situation. And, and uh, he's there to help you. You'll find the contact information in today's show notes right at the end of uh, the show notes under the sponsored links. Contact Alta Bank. Tell John, thank you so much for sponsoring this program. Oh, by the way, those show notes available at thebrianhydeshow.com. So... I, I have to say that the virtue signaling is, is reaching an absolutely deafening crescendo right now. And it's what's what's interesting and also just a little bit disturbing is the same people who may have may have said, well, we have to try to understand as as month after month of riots raged across America with real, Physical violence, burning, looting, destruction, threats, harassment of people. I guess as long as it's just the American people and business owners and private property owners that are paying the price, uh, they are, uh, well, it's sad, but, you know, this is what happens. you got to break a few eggs if you want to make an omelet. But, oh, man, to hear them talk about the, this small group of, of protesters who forced their way into the Capitol. And, by the way, I'm using the term forced pretty loosely. I've seen the video. I've watched it with my own eyes of Capitol Police who, yes, initially were trying to push the crowd back, but eventually there came a point where they just simply opened the barricades and let them in. And I don't know how many people total got in, but I can tell you it was the tiniest fraction of a percent of the crowd of people who were there in Washington, D.C., in support of Donald Trump, in support of freedom, in support of above-board elections. But to hear the virtue signalers and the opportunists tell it, what happened by those people entering the uh, Capitol without official permission was akin to the Holocaust. And you're hearing talk that sounds a lot like never again. And this is disturbing on a number of levels. Because right now it's being aimed at anyone who is to the right of Mitt Romney. That's a lot of folks, by the way. As if you are part of this problem. I keep hearing the, the, the phrase, we've got to root out this Trumpism. And when someone says that, I know I'm dealing with someone who is, is detached from reality and adrift on a sea of social justice angst and, and, uh, and misinformation. They still believe this, this was all about Trump. This is just about people who are so enthralled with this man, they see him as their dear leader. And I'll grant you, there are some people who are very attached to Donald Trump. I don't happen to be one of them, but I can clearly see that uh, what he was, he was held up to be by his opponents over the last four years, this authoritarian, di- this authoritarian dictator who was going to impose you know, this Nazi-like fascist rule, it never happened. In fact, the crazy thing about it is maybe we're dealing with classic psychological projection because the most fascist Nazi-like behavior has come from the so-called anti-fascists who believe it's okay to physically introduce violence into the life of anybody who simply isn't marching in lockstep with them. That sounds like what the Nazis did. That's not what Trump did. 
So yeah, the virtue signaling is is absolutely off the charts. And and it's it's not only tone deaf, but it's dangerous in that it's being weaponized. And boy, is it interesting to watch all these junior members of Congress and these these uh, Congress people who who were questioning the results of the election. And I might add, not just as as individuals and power seekers themselves, but because their constituents were saying, "We don't believe this thing was on the up and up," and they are being targeted for destruction. It cancel culture. I mean, it's it ridicule. We are having a gigantic national struggle session right now, and and very few people can recognize it for what it is. If you can get your hands on a copy of Red Scarf Girl, read that book. Read about the Chinese Cultural Revolution. You'll see some stark and shocking parallels to what's happening right now in America. So, it's not going to get easier. For people like you and me, people who... Um, I Look, I'm not a card-carrying Trump supporter. I'm not... Uh, I'm not anything but a person who just loves my liberty and wants to maintain it. I want to be left alone and know that I'm not going to be plundered by people who seem to think that, well, we won an election, so now everybody has to do exactly what we say. That's not how proper government works. And without my consent, you ain't getting jack. So back off. But they just won't leave us alone. And now it's, it's reached a cultural kind of revolution to where the, the purge is beginning. Look at all the different little congressmen and women that are snapping into lying. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I questioned. It's going to take some courage. And you're going to have to have a thick skin. We're all going to have to have thick skin if we want to hold to the principles and practices of liberty. Now, for me, it helps that uh, my, my faith in God... Um, tells me that uh, there there is nothing immoral about asserting your rights, your natural rights, and how they limit government's power over you. But uh, the little Maoists that are emerging among us, both officially in office and a lot of them without, ooh, they don't want to let it go. Now, there is some good news here. And actually, Daniel McAdams, writing for Mises.org, says there ain't no success like failure. He says, like me, you may be looking over the photos of supposed Trump, Trump supporters breaching the ramparts and storming the Capitol. That is if you can find them. Because to protect us from viewing these incredibly disturbing scenes, Twitter has helpfully announced it will now severely restrict their distribution across its network. So he says, we can all rest easier, I suppose. Though even memory-addled Americans may recall the free-for-all in posting BLM and Antifa violence on big tech's big platforms. Gee, that's not fair. Twitter's discriminating. Conservative politicians and responsible Beltway libertarians are wringing their hands over the supposedly horrible optics of people breaking through police lines and violating the most holy of sanctuaries, the Senate floor. By the way, the 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 responsible Beltway libertarians, guys, I've wondered how you could be so ineffective and how you always have so much trouble uh, getting any traction in any given election year. I'm beginning to understand. Turns out you're opportunists yourselves. Go sit down. (laughs) The world is going to move on without you, or at least people who are serious about freedom are going to move on without you. But it's that that idea that, oh, they violated the holy sanctuary. And and in this, uh, Daniel McAdams says, the religion of America is politics, and any violation of that sanctity of the holy body is to be condemned. He says, many of us, myself included, really aren't concerned about weirdos and buffalo horns occupying that sacred space reserved for St. Mitch McConnell. Oh, no. 
It will give CNN something to say about how horrible is the opposition to the incoming robber administration, whose victory is doubted even by almost one in five Democratic voters. Yeah, because absent that, they provide balanced coverage. He says the mainstream media and whinging Republicans are having a panic attack over those evil people who don't like the feeling that their vote was stolen. Well, the opportunities for responsible Republican virtue signaling are endless and just too intoxicating to resist. So he says, let's look for a silver lining. Opposition to Leviathan must be based on principle. The Democrats and Republicans are nearly identical in their view that only the political elites from the sacred throne of democracy recently defiled from the unwashed masses can save us from ourselves. We don't know how to manage our lives. We don't know how to manage our health. We're far too stupid to simply live without their constant guidance. Well, he says, actually, there are many areas wide open for us, those of us who are non-interventionist, non-partisans, to affect the debate in the coming days. And I like this note of optimism. In a way, it's fallen into our laps. We oppose interventionism on principle, and we have no opposition because no one else has any principles. Republicans, Beltway Libertarians, Democrats, nope. It's only about empty-headed power. Charles Schumer, by the way, drooling all over himself with his newfound power, tweeting, buckle up yesterday, but he has no power because he has no ideas. We have ideas, and no army can stop an idea whose time has come. This is The Brian Hyde Show.